go ahead and grab a Bible or a device with a Bible on it and turn to Mark chapter 14. Uh, for the past couple of years, we have been in Gospel of Mark, and uh, we, are, we are really coming down the home stretch. We've got a couple of more chapters, a few more weeks left in this Gospel. And, uh, and so uh, we are in this series right now called King Jesus. And today we're going to look at one of the most important, uh, I, I think, issues that uh, we have to deal with in the Christian life. And so the truth that we're going to see in this passage is a very simple one, uh, but it's also a very significant one for the Christian life. We're going to look at the story of Peter's failure when he denied Jesus three times. And so we're going to read two passages from Mark chapter 14. We're going to read verses 27 through 31, and then we're going to skip down and read verses 66 through the end of the chapter, verse 72. So I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you stand together out of reverence for the reading of God's Word today? So this is the Gospel according to Mark, verse 27, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to, said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and, and wept. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So I heard the story of a young CEO. He had just taken over as CEO of this big high-tech corporation. And uh, on his very first day, the previous CEO contacted him and said, Now, I know I'm no longer CEO of this corporation, but I want to give you some advice. He said, There are going to be some, some wins and some losses. There's going to be some successes and there's going to be some failures. And he said, what I've done is I prepared three envelopes for you and I've labeled, uh, you know, each envelope. The first one's envelope one, the second one envelope two, and the third one envelope three. And he said, I placed them in, the, in, the, in the, one of the drawers of your desk in your office. And he said, when you begin to feel like a failure, what I want you to do is go to the desk, open up that drawer and pull out an envelope. I want you to read them in order but I think you'll find some words of encouragement for you in the midst of you feeling like a failure. Well, the young CEO, I mean, he didn't think anything about it. 
I mean, he just got right to work and things were going great. It was the honeymoon phase. You know, everything was just humming along. But about six months into his tenure and his leadership, the company really began to take a turn downward. Uh, profits were down, sales were down, morale was really down, and he started to kind of feel like a failure. So he remembered the words of the previous CEO. So he went in and grabbed that first envelope, envelope number one. He opened it up. There was a sheet of paper inside of it, and it said, blame the previous CEO. And so he's like, well, that's a pretty good idea. So every single meeting he had from that point forward, he just started blaming the previous CEO. He did it with the board of directors. He did it with the shareholders. He did it with, you know, the, uh, a meeting of everybody, you know, all the employees. And he just began blaming the CEO for their current problems. And it, it worked immediately. You know, immediately sales kind of cropped up. Morale was so much better. Things were humming along for about six months. And all of a sudden, the company took another downturn. And he was scratching his head trying to figure this out. And so he went back and opened up envelope number two. And he opened it up and inside was a sheet of paper. And uh, envelope two said, reorganize, reorganize. So immediately he started just restructuring everything. He restructured the management team. He restructured, restructured the board. He, he changed a lot of the processes. And, and uh, you know, and that really did the trick. Immediately he saw an uptick in sales and morale was heading in the right direction. And all of a sudden the problems didn't seem as big anymore for about six months. And then all of a sudden company took a downturn again. So he's just beside himself trying to figure this thing out. So he goes back up to his office, pulls out envelope number three. He pulls out the sheet of paper and it says, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> it took you a little while this morning to get that one. Maybe you need a second cup of coffee. And so uh, now the reason why this passage uh, uh, that we've read is so important is because it deals with the issue of failure. And the truth of the matter is, every single one of us has failed. Like when you look around the room, we have all failed. And you can put me at the front of the line. You know, I have failed as a pastor. I have failed as a Christian. I have failed as a husband. I have failed as a dad. I have failed as a son. I have failed as a brother. I have failed as a friend. I can't tell you all the ways that I have failed. We'd be here all day. You know, there are times when I've gotten, you know, frustrated and yelled at my kids. There are times when I'm more interested in being a people pleaser than a God pleaser. There are times when I'm envious of somebody else's success or whatever that they have. I mean, that's just part of it. There are times when the Spirit of God tells me I need to do something or I need to say something, and there are times when I've resisted that and I didn't do it. And so I can't tell you all the ways that I fail, but, but what I know is this, I don't think I'm the only one in the room because we've all had to deal with failure. And maybe for you, as a Christian, it's pornography. Maybe it's, it's just sexual. You know, maybe for you, it's an addiction of some kind. Perhaps you're in a season right now where you're being dis disobedient and disrespectful to your parents, and it's a pattern. Maybe that's where you're at today. You know, maybe you're just weary from struggling with sin. You're so weary, you're ready to give up. And I think the question, the question really becomes, what do I do when I fail? Like, how does a Christian handle failure? 
Because I think we have this image that Christians aren't supposed to fail, right? We have this expectation that Christians live differently, or maybe they live perfectly. So, so the question then becomes, well, what does a Christian do when a Christian fails miserably? And, and, and just kind of, to kind of push down on it, how do you handle continual and repeated failure as a Christian, as a believer? Well, the passage that we're going to look at really is going to give us an inside look at failure. We're going to talk about some steps dealing with failure, but I want us to kind of cross-examine or dissect kind of Peter's failure, his famous failure when denying Jesus three times. And what we see is that Jesus and the disciples are heading down to Gethsemane. Now, this is, this is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. And, uh, and so Jesus has a very long night and a very long day ahead of him, and he knows what's coming. So he's about to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be interrogated, he's going to be beaten and flogged and spit upon and sneered at, and then they're going to get started crucifying him. And then he's going to die on a Roman cross, separated from the first time in all of eternity from his heavenly father. So he's got a lot in front of him. And and so they're heading down to Gethsemane, and he says to his disciples, you see this in verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And you see it just plain as day, and he calls it out. Now, church, let's just think about what he's saying here for a minute, because this is really, really important. Jesus knows the disciples are about to abandon him. He knows they're going to fall and fail miserably. He calls it out. He predicts it. And I think it's, I think it's, it's instructive here that Jesus understands the human condition. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our inclinations. He understands our struggles. He understands our, our failures. He understands our brokenness. Yet, he still loves us. He knows all the dirt on us more than we know, more than we're aware of, and he still loves us. And that's exactly what he's doing with the disciples. He's not abandoning them. He's not bringing the wrath of God down on them. No, he he loves them. He believes in them. And he delights in them anyway. And I think that's instructive for you and for me. Frankly, it's hard to comprehend that kind of love, is it not? That somebody would love us like that in the midst of our failure and our sin and our brokenness and all of that. But Jesus says to his disciples, you guys are about to blow it big time. And just to, just to bolster his claim, because Jesus anticipates what they're going to say and, you know, right along that expectation, they, they do it. They, they absolutely deny. They're like, there's no way that's ever going to happen. But he bolsters his claim by reaching back to the Old Testament and quoting Zechariah 13, 7, which is a prophecy about Jesus because everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. That's how we need to read the Old Testament, looking for Jesus. And that's how Jesus reads the Old Testament, by the way. And he says, for it is written in the Old Testament, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, I don't know. This is probably the 10th or 11th time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has predicted his death. And, uh, and Jesus says, the shepherd, uh, meaning himself, is going to be struck. And, uh, and as a result of that, 
uh, the sheep are going to scatter. And so Jesus predicts the disciples will absolutely bail on him. Now, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice Peter's response because this is getting close to where I am and where we typically are. Look at what, look at what Peter says in response in verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. What Peter's saying here is, Jesus, I really appreciate your opinion, but you're wrong on this one. I would never fall away. And, and I think while this might sound kind of good on the surface, it's really not. Because it, re it reveals the posture of Peter's heart. It's, it's, in fact, I think what we see in this passage are a couple of indicators of where Peter's heart really is. And these indicators don't protect us from falling. These indicators actually cause us to fall. And the first indicator that we see of Peter's heart posture is that he has a heart position or posture of pride. That's, that's his operating system. That's how he is operating. He is operating out of pride. Now, what is, what is pride? Pride is arrogance. Pride is self-exaltation. Pride is self-sufficiency. I got this. I can do this. I'm strong enough. I'm good enough. That's his operating system. That's where his heart is. And he reveals it. And, and really, pride manifests itself so clearly. You see this, you, you see this in relationships all the time. When, when we start to compare ourselves with other people, and the sum total is, I'm better. We compare ourselves, we do an evaluation of someone else compared to us, and the judgment is, I'm better. That's pride. That's, and that's exactly what he does. I'll never fall away. They might, the disciples might very well fall away, he says. But I never will. And so what Peter is doing is he's putting himself above the possibility of failing. Like there's not even a remote chance. There's no way that this could happen, Jesus. And what you see here is pride. I don't need any help. I'm strong enough. I got this. Look how Jesus pushes back on him very gently. Verse 30, he just speaks the truth to him. And uh, Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Now that is right to the heart. But what, what pride does is it blinds us. Pride hardens us. And so he doubles down on it, Peter does. He doubles down on his pride. He says, verse 31, he said, emphatically, I mean, if I must die, I'm not going to deny you. And then all the others said the same because they had to match his claims, right? Well, I mean, they're comparing. Well, we, gotta, we can't be below Peter, so we, we got to match that. And so what you see is this operating system, this heart posture of pride, and it's an indicator that failure is coming. It is just a matter of time. See, here's the issue with pride. I, 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 think, I think the issue real, real practically, very specifically is this. It's the people who think they're the most invincible who are actually the most vulnerable. It's the people who think, oh, I've never sinned. I would never fall into that. It's, it's those who very well will fall into it. And we, we say this kind of stuff to ourselves. We maybe say it 
to other people that care about us. Oh, you know, I'm not drinking too much. I can handle my, I can handle my alcohol. I'm not leaning on it. I'm just having the occasional drink at 11 o'clock in the morning every day. But, it, you know, I can handle that. Or how about this one? You know, I'm so strong, I, I would never cross any physical lines with the girl that I'm dating or the guy that I'm dating. I would never cross those lines. And you have to be careful with that. Because you see, what, what pride does is it blinds us to our vulnerability. It prevents us from seeing who we really are. And Proverbs warns about this. Proverbs 16, 18. You know this verse better than I know it. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you were to take your failures and to do an autopsy on those failures, you would probably see there's a good chance pride was the driver for it. It was the driver for it. And so it's, that's what happens when we get into this kind of heart posture that we can't really see how vulnerable we really are. You, you know, the thing about the grace of God is the more that you've experienced the grace of God, the more you see the truth about yourself. The more we experience God's grace in our life, the more sinful we really see ourselves to be. And the closer you get to Jesus, the, the, more, you know, the more you grow in your knowledge and your love for Him, the more you see how broken you are and how much you really need Him in your life. And there's a misconception, I, I think, in, you know, in, in, the, in the church today. We think of Christian growth as some kind of escalator upward, you know, this escalator of progress that we get on and it's just taking us up and we're getting stronger and we're getting better and man, we're mastering life and we're, we're acing it right and left and we've got our life all together and we think that's growth in the Christian life. It's really not. You know what growth in the Christian life really is? It's getting on the elevator and going down going down to dependence, going down to humility and recognizing, man, Jesus, I need thee every hour, every hour I need thee. You take your hand off me, Jesus, I am, I am toast. That's growth in the Christian life where the scales are brought off of our eyes and we see the truth that we are weak and frail, needy people in need of a savior. And so that's why, that's why pride is so deadly, is it blinds us to that truth and that reality. So that's the first disposition that we see with Peter's heart. But the second disposition is a dis disposition that we're all very familiar with, and that is the disposition of fear. And you've got to fast forward down to verse 66 to see this, because now the, now the setting has changed. We're no longer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and Peter's no longer operating out of pride. He has, he has transitioned completely to fear and anxiety. And uh, you see this because Jesus has been arrested. They have taken him to the house of Caiaphas. There is a small crowd that is gathered in the wee hours of the morning because they know something is up. They know something is significant has happened. And Peter has gathered with this crowd in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas where Jesus is you know, inside the, the palace of Caiaphas, Jesus is being interrogated. And so we see, we see this operating system of fear really pop out of Peter's heart. Notice verse 66. 
And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself by the fire, she looked at him and said, you also are a Nazarene. You you know Jesus. You're, You're one of his followers. But notice this, but he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand even what you mean. It's the strongest category of denial that you could come up with in in that statement and then he went out of the gateway and immediately the rooster crowed now you can just see the panic in in Peter's you know face you can hear it in his in his voice he's like I have no idea what you're talking about you're telling me that I'm a follower of Jesus I don't even know what you're saying I don't even know what that even means and so Peter and this exchange happens a total of three times. And then the third time, Peter's so adamant in his denial that he starts calling down curses on himself. He starts swearing, trying to bolster his claim that he doesn't know Jesus. And so what has happened here is Peter has moved from pride to fear. His heart shifted right out of self-sufficiency to doubting God's sufficiency. You see, Peter Peter has moved from the place of thinking too highly of himself, and now he's thinking too lowly of Jesus. You see the shift? He is absolutely fearful. And at the moment of this confrontation, you know, this, this, this servant girl who he's afraid of in the crowd, you know, in Caiaphas' courtyard, you know, starts talking to him, and Peter has lost all confidence in Jesus. Now, now think about this. This is, I mean, this is not just a momentary lapse here. He has been with Jesus three years. He has seen Jesus raise the dead. He has seen Jesus calm the storm. He has seen Jesus feed the 5,000. He's heard the Sermon on the Mount and, you know, many other sermons that Jesus preached. He has had a 50-yard line view of the power and the sufficiency of Jesus. And I mean, it has exited the building. It has exited his heart in just a matter of moments. He has lost all confidence that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is sufficient. And he's asking the question as he's imagining the worst. What if they find me out? What if they arrest me? What's going to happen to my family? Who's going to take care of that? You know, you know what's going to happen my, to my business? And so he begins to ask these series of questions and he's living in fear because he has, he has lost his faith in the assurance of God that turns away from fear, that turns us away from fear. So that's, that's the picture that we get. And so we're either operating in self-sufficiency, thinking too highly of ourselves, or we're operating where we're not thinking highly enough of Jesus, which is, which is really fear. And this is where Peter is. And the truth is, we've all, we've all been there. Now, I I love the fact that Jesus never leaves us in our sin. He he never leaves us in our darkness. He never abandons us at our lowest place. Because what we have right in the middle of this passage is we have really good news. We have the gospel right in the middle of it. And, And you'll see it in verses 27 and 28. Go back to Jesus' prediction that the disciples will fall away. Notice verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But notice, notice gospel, notice good news right in the middle of this. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Now let's, let's camp on that for a minute. Think about what Jesus is saying. Don't miss the hope that's right in the middle of this, right in the middle of this occurrence and this passage. Jesus knew it was the will of God for the shepherd to be struck, and, and as a result, the sheep would scatter. Jesus knows he's going to the cross, and that he is going to, uh, he's going to bear the sins of the disciples and the sins of the world. And the disciples would have a 50-yard line view of this. They would see it all. They would see Jesus betrayed. They would see him arrested. They would see him beaten and flogged. They would see him spit upon. And they would see him crucified. The disciples would see all of this. And why is all of that happening? Because Jesus is dying for the failures of the disciples, for the sins of the disciples. He's dying for our failures. He's dying for our sins. And, and, so, and so Jesus, in the middle of this, gives us a word of hope that the gospel doesn't end with the darkness of crucifixion. The darkness ends with new life because of the resurrection. And that's what Jesus is pointing them to. He says this, but after I am raised up, I'm, the shepherd's going to be struck. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. But after that, he's going to be raised up. He's, he's, he's pointing them to resurrection. And then he says, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. Now, do you notice that? Now, what in, the world, what in the world does he mean, I'm going to go before you to Galilee? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things in this. I, I think first and foremost, as Jesus is, is acknowledging and predicting their failure and their falling away, Jesus is not rejecting them. He's not neglecting them. He's not giving up on them. After they're, they're about to betray him, he doesn't give up on them. He says, you know what? We're going to meet on the other side. We're going to get through this low point and we're going to regather in Galilee. Now, the disciples had to be asking the question because they're practical people like you and I are. They had to be asking, why Galilee? I mean, why do we have to go back up there? I mean, that's like 100, 110 miles up to the north. We're all in Jerusalem, Jesus. Why do we need to go back to Galilee? Why is Galilee so important at this juncture? Why do we need to go back up there? And the answer to that question is because there's something there. And you know what it is? It's a new beginning. It's a new beginning. Because Galilee... Galilee is significant because that's where Jesus first met the disciples. That's where Jesus called the disciples. That's where Jesus did per, the vast majority of his training of the disciples. That's where they saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, look, we're going we're, we're gonna to reconvene in the place where it all started, and we're going to start again. Practically, what this means is this. Jesus is saying to Peter and he's saying to the disciples, I'm going I'm to carry your sins. I'm going to pay the penalty for your sins. And that is going to open the floodgates of God into your life. And the Spirit is going to come and raise me from the dead. And the Spirit is going to come and raise you and give you a whole new life. All of that, you know, through through God's mercy and grace. And you see this, you, you see this in, in Luke 22 and uh, verses 31 and 32. This is, this is how Luke records 
you know, part of this incident. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to, to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Here, here's what Jesus is saying. Peter, I prayed that you will not fail, but you're going to fail. But my grace is going to pick you up. And when that happens, I want you to strengthen your brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus is saying. He is, he is pointing him to something so beautiful. And you know what it is? It's grace. Grace right in the middle of our failures. Grace right before our failures. That's what Jesus is promising. Jesus is looking down, get this, he's looking down the corridors of Peter's future and he's saying, you know what, there's sin in your future, there's failure in your future, but you know what, my grace is bigger than your failure. My grace can handle your failure. And when you've gotten back up, Peter, I want you to strengthen your brothers with what? Grace. Because we all need it. And it's really good news for us. Because Jesus looks at us. He looks at the corridors. He looks down the corridors of our future. And you know what he sees? He sees failure. But he sees something greater than that. You know what it is? Grace. That's what he sees. And what Jesus is saying to us, my grace can handle your failures and when you get back up when the grace of God picks you back up I want you all to strengthen each other with that same grace that's what he's saying and we see this pattern all the way throughout the Old Testament uh, you see it in the story of Abraham you guys remember the story of Abraham in Genesis God called Abraham and uh, he said to Abraham I'm going to give you a promise I'm going to bless the entire world through you and I'm going to give your family a promised land. That's what he says. And I'm going to bless the entire world through you, through your, through your family, through your offspring. There was only one teeny-weeny little problem with that. Abraham and Sarah didn't have any kids, and they were old as dirt. That was the only problem with that. But God made a promise. And just like God does, he makes a promise, and he calls us to wait. And he called Abraham and Sarah to wait, and they had 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 to wait. And, and man, they're even older than dirt by this point. And, uh, and they waited. And so what they did is they got so impatient with the promises of God that they developed their own scheme to make the promises of God come true in their own strength. And they made some arrangements so that Abraham could have a son. And it was a colossal failure. It really was. But see, our failures are not the end of the story. God's grace is the end of the story because the promises that God made to Abraham were ultimately fulfilled. And God blessed the entire world through Abraham through giving us Jesus. I love the story of David. David had an affair. And notice this. Once he realized what he did, he was fearful. 
He was operating out of fear. He doubted the sufficiency of God. So you know what he did? He had Bathsheba's husband murdered to cover up his sin because his heart posture was fear. Now, Abraham's was pride, but David was operating out of fear. And then you notice what happened that David, through forgiveness and through restoration, David became a man after God's own heart. And what is that? It's the grace of God. You fast forward the story of Peter. He denies Jesus three times. He is afraid. He's operating out of that heart posture. But that's not the end of the story. God's grace is the end of the story. And Jesus, out of love for him, restores him. And he becomes a co-author of the New Testament and one of the most important apostles in the early church. Now, I say all of that to say this, church. If there's grace for Abraham and there's grace for David, and there's grace for Peter. Hear me. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. There's grace for you. There's grace for you. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Because it's not sin that defines us. It's the grace of God that defines us. Now, real quick, let me give you some steps to handling failure. I want to get really practical in this, okay? We've all failed. We will fail in the future. What do we do? Number one, we need to be quick to confess and repent. We need to be quick to confess and repent. If you've fallen, if you have failed, in big ways or in small ways, be quick to confess and repent. You know, someone once said to err is human, and, and so is covering it up. That's, uh, that's human, right? Here's, here's what we need to do, church. We don't need to try to cover it up. We don't need to pretend it didn't happen. We don't need to avoid it. What we need to do, and I know this sounds counterintuitive, but we need to quickly confess and repent. We need to quickly fall on our knees and get right with God and, and call out to Him, God, be merciful to me as a sinner. I think one of the biggest lies going for us as Christians is when we fail and we fall into sin, we think that we've got to pay for it in some way. And we know Jesus died on the cross, we know he loves us, but we, we just feel like it's only fair that I pay for it even after I've trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And the good news of the gospel is this, your debt was paid in full, past, present, future, period. It was paid in full, you don't have to pay for it. And, and so what that means is you don't need to wallow in your sin. You, you don't need to distance yourself from God. You need to run hard after Him. You need to give yourself to Him. And we do it in two ways. We confess, which just simply means to agree with God that we have sinned. And maybe it's out of pride. Maybe it's out of fear. If you can see that, call that out and confess that. And then, and then claim the promises of God in the midst of your confession. One promise I love is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise from God. Take it to the bank. But then repentance means to change your mind and say, you know what? What I did was stupid, was dumb. I want to change directions. And God, give me the gift of repentance. See, the enemy wants to do this, church. Understand his tricks. He wants to tempt you. He wants to taunt you. And he wants to bind you in shame. 
He wants to tell you that your primary identity is a failure. That's what the enemy does. And what the Bible says, as a Christ follower, you're sons and daughters of God. That's your primary identity. So that's why you need to confess and repent and do it quickly. Don't wallow in it. Number two, and I'm, I want to share this with you, talk back to the enemy. This, this is a point that I got from Pastor John Piper, but it was so good. I just really wanted to share it with you. You need to talk back to the enemy. Now, you know, what, what, what do we mean by talk back to the enemy? You know, I wish I could tell you that when you fail and you fall into sin and you're depressed and you're down and you're discouraged, that the enemy just lets up on you. He just gives you space just so that you can clear your head. I wish I could tell you he, he does that. That he takes it easy on you when you fall and you're struggling and you're failing and you're groveling and you're doing all of that stuff. Oh, you know, poor so-and-so. I'm just going to take it easy on him. I'm not going to tempt him. I'm not going to do anything more to him. I'm just going to kind of let, let him or let her just, just kind of lay there and, and uh, I'm not going to do that. No, he doesn't do that at all. You know what he does, church? He pours it on even more. Satan is the original kick them while they're down guy. He really is. He's the one who came up with it. And when you're down, he's coming after you. And he's going to lie to you, and he's trying to get you to agree with his lies. Well, you can't trust God. You're a failure. God's not good. All of that stuff. What you need to do, when the enemy starts to accuse you and lie to you, you need to talk back to him. You need to go right after him. And he puts thoughts in our head, and, he, and there's a voice of condemnation and accusation that comes into our head, and we need to speak back to him. Well, you're like, well, what do we say? You, you, you quote scripture, you quote the truth of scripture back to him. Let me show you this from Micah 7, uh, 7 and 8. Now, the context for this is Micah the prophet is dealing with the, the sin of his people and uh, in dealing with his own sin. And they, they have failed miserably. But notice what Micah says. But as for me, he's talking about himself. I'm going to look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now notice this. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. Because he's talking to the enemy there. Rejoice. Don't rejoice over me. When I fall, I shall rise. Now he's not talking out of pride there. He's talking in hope in his relationship with God. How do I know that? Because he says it. When I sit in darkness... The Lord will be light to me. So he's not boasting in himself. He's boasting in God and he's talking back to the enemy. The enemy's going to come after you, church, and he's going to lie to you and accuse you. And you need to say, no, those thoughts, those voices are not welcome in my head or in my heart. And uh, the Lord will be a light to me. Number three, let me share this with you. When you're dealing with failure, you need to accept God's discipline. You need to accept God's discipline. You know, there's so much grace available for our failure. But understand this, church, because I think some of you are thinking, oh, man, I got to get out of jail card free. I can just go live however I want to live, and I can just ask for God's forgiveness. I can go out and do it again and ask for God's forgiveness. Hold the phone, not so fast. God's quick to forgive. His mercies are new every morning. But there are consequences to sin. And he can't set you free from those consequences. And so what he does is he disciplines us. 
and he allows consequences of our actions to land on us. Not to punish us. Jesus was punished us, was punished for us. But what he does is he uses discipline to teach us, and to change us. And what the Bible says is like a loving father with his son or daughter will discipline her or discipline him. That's exactly what God does with us. He will allow us to go through discipline, not, not, not to hurt us, not to harm us, but to grow us and to change us. And then number four, here's the last one, dealing with failure. And this may be the hardest one of all, is you simply receive God's grace. Receive God's grace. See, the reality of this is this. Grace is never earned. It's never achieved. And it's not deserved. But grace is received as a gift. Let me take you back to 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful, means he always will forgive us of our sins. And he's just to forgive us of our sins. He's faithful, he'll always do it, and he's just, which means it's the right thing for him to do to forgive us. Do you know why? Because he loved us so much, he died on the cross for us. He paid it. So he'll always forgive and it's right for him to do it. That's really good news. And so whatever you're dealing with today, whatever you're struggling with today, I want to challenge you. When you fall, fall on Jesus and get back up. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for your goodness, your grace to us. Thank you, we all have to deal with failure. We've all fallen. But I thank you that your grace is there to pick us back up. And so God, may we be ever dependent on you. May we, may we be growing in dependence upon you. May we call out to you for help more and more. That what we've struggled with yesterday and yesteryear, it's no longer a struggle anymore because we're leaning more heavily on you. So God, would you just work? Would you give hope? Would you give grace? Would you give mercy today? We love you, God. We praise you and thank you. Thank you for your example that you give us. Thank you for your mercy and grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.